0: Welcome to hymn talk, a discussion of hymn singing and theology in the life of the church. My name is Zach DePrima, and with me is my brother Alex. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing well.
1: Happy to be here. Alex, what confession do we hold to at Emanuel Church? Well, it's an interesting question. The primary confession of faith we hold to is the of principles, which was the charter document of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. All members are required to subscribe to that. And then there's a few supplementary statements, like Danvers' statement of biblical manhood, womanhood, a couple of others. We do require that elders, though, and, and deacons, uh, they have to subscribe to the Second London Baptist, on top of these other confessions, have to subscribe to the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, uh, with a few minor exception clauses.
0: Great. So, also known to, known as the 1689 London Baptist Confession, and uh, that's the confession you and I grew up on, right? So yeah, uh, that's right. I have a an excerpt from one of the articles. This is Chapter Twenty Two, Paragraph One, and this is on uh, right worship in the church. And the paragraph says, "The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all." is just good and does good to all and is therefore to be feared loved praised, called upon trusted in and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might but the acceptable way of worshiping the true god is instituted by himself and so limited by his over his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, hmm. nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the holy scriptures. Amen, Alex. This is a principle laid down our confession, also known as the what?
1: This would be a Puritan articulation of the regulative principle of the regulative, which can principle. be articulated in different ways. But this is how the Puritans articulated it in the Westminster Standards, written at Westminster. Abbey by mostly uh, Presbyterians in 1646 or 1644 through 47. Uh, and then the, the Second Line of Baptist Confession is essentially, I don't know exactly how much, 90 to 95% of that material is wholly repeated from the Westminster Confession, just with Baptist distinctives introduced.
0: Yes. Yeah. That was a long answer mm-hmm. to my simple question, which is that it is... If ever I can a, include
1: a little more historical <laughs> detail, I think that people, people hang on these podcasts, so those little yes. nuggets that, hmm, tell me more. You well, know? hey, that's why we pay you so much for your expertise. Yeah.
0: Well, we sure. pay you a whopping zero dollars. Uh, yes, it's the regulative principle, and that's the topic of our conversation today. We wanted to talk about the regulative principle. Alex, it's called a principle. Uh, is, it's not a regulative command, but mm-hmm. can you just, w- what are the cliff notes? What's, why do we believe in the regulative principle? Why do we value the regulative principle? Uh, what's the purpose of the regulative principle?
1: The regulative principle as such was developed at the, around the time of the Reformation and um, became, uh, especially, be, became a distinctive of Reformed worship. Um, I'm using that term kind of narrowly, like John Calvin Reformed right. worship. Like the Reformation movement, you had lots of different uh, uh, um, sort of offshoots. You had the Lutheran movement, you had the Anglican movement, you had the Radical or Anabaptist movement, and you had the Reformed movement, mm-hmm. which the Reformed movement would have been in, in, in the line of John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli. And uh, the Puritans and others were kind of in continuity with that tradition. And they developed a a view about worship that was especially prominent in the Reformed wing of the Reformation that, uh, in part, as a response to medieval Roman Catholicism and uh, some things going on in the Lutheran movement, but also, I think, personally, um, an effort at sound exegesis of the Bible and understanding the Bible's perspectives on worship, this view that we're not free to do in worship whatever we want to do or just what the Bible doesn't say we can't do. We're free to do in worship that which God himself either warrants or prescribes, that which God calls his people to do. So we're not free to sort of orchestrate worship services however we would like. So so what that means is the elements of the worship service are going to be given to us by Scripture itself, regulated by the Bible. That's where the regulative principle idea comes from. Worship is regulated by God and his word. Now, an important distinction to make Is uh, even in the articulation of the regulative principle, there's different ways to articulate it. The Puritans, as you just noted, in the Second London Baptist Confession, the particular Baptists, and the Presbyterians.
0: I want to stop you there because we're going to get into that that final. You you can see where I'm
1: going with this. Oh, okay. Uh, I read minds. Uh,
0: I I want to take a take a um, zoom back a little bit because this regulative principle. Can be understand. Um, I don't know when these things were articulated first, but it's often seen in contrast to the normative principle, uh-huh. which would be more familiar in something like a Lutheran context, uh-huh. and that, as opposed to only allowing for what the Scripture prescribes or warns, yes. it's allowing for anything except for what what the Bible. What about precludes? Would preclude yeah, or
1: yeah, and and to be honest, the normative principle is often slandered. And it's not exactly how Luther thought. Luther was like, "Hey, we could do whatever we want right. as long as the God doesn't say we can't do it." Mm-hmm. You know, Um but that's typically how it's said. The normative principle is going to be more free in terms of what is permitted. That that uh, there's there's more license to organize things that are you know we, we might think this is edifying, so we're gonna. We're going to include this, as long as it's not disallowed by the Bible. But it's not like, hey, you can just do whatever comes into your mind. So that position is often um, uh, misrepresented. But yes, the regular principle should be put in contrast to that, because the regular principle is much more narrow. It's saying we we can't do anything in worship. We should not be doing anything in worship outside of what the Bible, in essence, prescribes or warrants. So,
0: Alex, I think a question that... I've had a lot that many people have had on this topic is why do we apply a principle like this narrowly to the topic of gathered worship as opposed to other areas or facets of the Christian life what why is it important for us to develop a principle like this and apply it in the context of worship and not of life, Well, the or truth, the truth, is, the truth or... is we
1: do do it in all of life. Okay. I mean, there's all kinds of biblical principles that are regulating how we view preaching, how we view membership in the church, mm-hmm. how we view marriage. But, but the reason this particular principle was developed the way it was, was in the context of what the reform thinkers thought were perversions of the worship of God. So it's one of the reasons why you read Puritans, they're like really big on getting rid of candles and when you kneel and when you stand at communion and how... The, the Lord's Supper is is presented and the rooms that you're in in terms of how the room is laid out and stained glass and uh, icons and things like because they viewed all these intrusions on gathered worship were presented you know by medieval Roman Catholics that they felt were alien to the Bible so all this ritualism and all this um, uh, they would view as idolatry, mm-hmm. entering into the worship of God. And there was this effort to sort of cleanse the temple and say, no, we're not free to just add whatever church tradition or or whatever it says we ought to add. Our worship should be shaped by the Bible, regulated by the Bible. So the principle emerged in a certain context. Mm-hmm. It, was, so, it was it was it was it was introduced so that the principle was established in part or articulated in large measure, because the worship of God they believed was being profaned, and there was a need to go back to the Bible and to see how has God Himself laid this out for us and shown us how He wishes to be worshipped.
0: So you're saying the regular principle isn't taught in God's Word?
1: On, um, I mean that that's kind of be uh, kind of a circular argument. The regular principle is saying our worship should be based upon God's Word. Yes. So is it taught in god's word i mean the the principles god does teach us in his word how he wants to be worshiped mm-hmm. that's true mm-hmm. so uh, i'm not really exactly sure i would answer well, that
0: well I, I just wonder can you have for for this concept of the regular principle are there proof texts are there
1: places you can go in scripture to yes or argue no. for know for yes or so no principle? i mean i mean like paul writes to timothy first timothy three fifteen. I, I write to you so you know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of god hmm Right mm-hmm. he has, and he has imperative statements in that same letter in First Timothy, I desire first Timothy 2, I forget the verse, that the men pray, lifting mm-hmm. holy hands. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there are you know and then in other places there are imperatives about singing and imperatives about preaching. Yeah. Um, I hear it often yeah. brought up, uh, Leviticus 10, Nadab and
0: Abihu offer strange fire on the altar mm-hmm. and they are immediately consumed mm-hmm. by the Lord. And the implication from a lot of people, I think I've heard John MacArthur argue this, is they were, you know, just freelancing and saying, hey, this is what we should do uh, without having a command from the Lord. So there's this idea of God had not prescribed them to offer that fire, and they bore the consequences of that.
1: Yeah, I, I personally would not go to that passage to try to make the point about the regular principle. I, no one I don't know if anybody's ever argued that the Old Testament didn't operate under some reg, under some regulative principle Old Testament worship the, down down to the moments and the minutes and the architecture and the candles and everything the lighting was meticulously prescribed mm-hmm. in the Torah. Mm-hmm. We don't have that level of prescription in New Testament worship, and those who hold to the regular principle will not argue we have that level of prescription. No one tells us how long the sermon should be. We don't have a liturgy presented in terms of what the order should be. What most people arguing for the regular principle are arguing is the basic elements for worship are laid out in God's Word, and we're not free to add elements of worship as we see fit.
0: Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, and I think how the 1689 says it is, uh, any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures... Uh, I know you have preference for the word uh, warrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about that distinction?
1: Okay, so, well, and it is an, an historical distinction. Many in the Reformed camp, uh, the way this represented is there's the continental view and there's the, uh, the, the English view um, or the Puritan view. Um, the Puritans had a more narrow take on the regulative principle, which you just read. We only do in worship that which the Bible prescribes so there's a prescription. The continental view would hold that we only do in Scripture that which the Bible warrants. Some people may say it's a distinction without difference. I would say there is a difference there, that that warrant is a little less restrictive, so we don't have to find more narrow, uh, something as narrow as a prescription, like I desire that the men pray lifting holy hands. Um, we're recognizing there may be Elements of worship that are not plainly commanded or prescribed, but seem to be warranted by the Scriptures. Okay, uh, my personal opinion is that certain certain uh, the the reciting of creeds. I could argue it's prescribed, but would argue that it certainly seems warranted by a number of crucial passages. Um, so it's a little less restrictive, though still prioritizing uh, the Bible's place in regulating the worship of God. A wonderful book on this
0: topic that I read a couple of years ago, uh, you know, Four Views, Five Views, I think Zondervan puts out those books. Mm -hmm. They have a book on worship and Lig Duncan writes a wonderful chapter, which I think he basically argues for the regulative principle, but, and his chapter is excellent in its own right, but a a chapter I agree with even more is uh, the chapter Mark Dever wrote with Michael Lawrence. Uh, a wonderful chapter if anybody listening to us wants to dive deeper into this topic of, of the nuances of the regulative principle. Alex, can you be reformed and not hold to the regulative principle?
1: Uh, not strictly speaking. It's it's, it's a distinctive of reformed theology. Um, so no, capital R reformed. Uh, you, you are not capital R reformed if you don't hold to the regulative principle. Hmm. But can you be a Calvinist and... Have a high view of the worship of God and a covenantal view of salvation and the people of God. I mean, yeah, you can have those things. So on the ground here, Alex, in the sunny
0: south, uh, pastoring a church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, what are ways this concept of the regular principle has been challenging for you in ministry, or at least in conveying to people with maybe a different church background?
1: Oh, well. I think a lot of people feel – I mean, I think the regular principles made a wonderful comeback over the last 20 years in my lifetime. But uh, lots of people think we're free to do whatever we think will attract people. We're free to do whatever we think will bless people. So if we want to have uh, skits in in the service, if we want to have – like a big one is videos. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're going to show a, a, a five-minute bumper video. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to have a time where we show a video of something that ends up being an illustration for the sermon or something. Um, you know, puppet shows used to be a thing. I, mm. I never was in a service with a puppet show. But, um, and then in more high church circles, there might be particular things like the burning of incense and other stuff that, you know. But, uh, is there anything you've ever run into? I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Well, I was just going to say, I think the, the, the prevailing approach to quote-unquote worship gatherings is, is largely pragmatic what will attract people, hmm. what will uplift people, what will, in some cases, entertain people. I don't think most people hold to the regulative principle. So they're not thinking, what has God set in his word are the elements through which he wants to be worshipped. He has Most people aren't thinking God has set the liturgy in a sense. God has told us how he wants to be worshipped. I think most people assume they have the freedom to kind of, well, whatever, whatever, whatever is uplifting to people, whatever is encouraging to people, whatever we think would appeal to people we have that freedom hmm.
0: can you think of anything in your experience where uh, something a practice you thought was a wonderful idea that you even wanted to do but decided not to because you uphold to the regular principle
1: yeah not i mean not not a ton i mean we, I, it has occurred to me at different times um Uh, The value of, like, showing a a video or something like that could be useful. I don't do that, though, out of principle. Um, We were at a church, and the pastor asked. We were—this is back before the church. I'm a pastor of now. We were raising funds to plant the church. And the pastor wanted to interview me during the service. And I thought it was inappropriate. I thought this is the worship of God— you know, Getting me up there to be interviewed for five minutes in the middle of a worship service seems inappropriate. Mm. Um, now, he was a senior man, older guy, and I was in his house, and I didn't object to that. I didn't, I didn't feel I should tell him. I didn't feel comfortable with that. But we would not do that as a matter of principle. I wouldn't, mm. in the middle of, of the worship of God, think, okay, let's have Zach come up, and I'm going to interview him about you know, ways we could be praying for him or something like that. Some people may say that's over the top. Um, but, but it's largely believing God has a way he wants to be worshiped, and I want to really jealously guard that time and make sure I'm communicating clearly to our congregation. We're seeking to do as God has shown us to do, and, and he is the spotlight of this service. God is at the center of our worship. Everything is conspiring to praise him and to worship him, and I'm not free to just kind of shake up the program. So those mm. would be some examples.
0: In the past few years, what are some benefits uh, you think people have, have observed uh, from the regulative principle here at Emmanuel, And maybe not knowing that that's what we call it, um, what are some benefits that you've seen over the years? Of yeah, the well, the, the
1: comments people give us all the time is there's so much prayer in your service. Hmm. There's so much Scripture. Everything seems to be centered on God. It's all about Him. I mean, th- that's, that's, that's the desirable outcome. Of the right employing of the regulative principle, the right use of the regulative principle. You want God-centeredness to be emphasized. You want the means of grace. When I say means of grace, I mean prayer, the preaching of God's word, fellowship, communion, the sacraments. Um, yeah. So a sense of of being greatly edified through the channels that God Himself has put in place uh, uh, to to to. Uh, 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 characterizes worship. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of things. A lot and, of scripture, a lot of prayer, emphasis on... Any other thoughts on the regulative principle before we move to our hymn of the week? I think it's important. I think it's something to fight for. I think it's an important distinctive. And I would encourage churches, whether they consider themselves reformed or not, if they hold to the regulative principle, bring that thing out into the light and tell your congregation exactly what you're doing. Hmm. So why why don't we have skits here? Well, I can tell you exactly why. God does not want to be worshiped by skits. Hmm. God wants to be worshiped, he tells us, through prayer, singing, the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, etc. cetera. And so I just think, Pastor, you'd be really clear on this, and we need to hold the line on this, uh, down to some details. This isn't testimony time. Hmm. you know. This isn't time to have a ministry come and present about the great work they're doing in feeding the hungry in your town. Have a prayer meeting for that. Have hmm. a small group mm-hmm. gathering for that. Have a time, a Sunday school and a quick class. But if, if, if we're calling this the worship of God... I think I think there's there's ample ample warrant in the scriptures to argue that this time should be oriented along the lines that God has has laid out in his word. And therefore we're gonna worship according to the way he's he's laid out, because this is ultimately about him. Not the church's program, not the church's agenda, and not even what we happen to think might be most uplifting or encouraging for us. Mm. And I think that's a that's a hill worth we're trying to take mm. and trying to promote. And I wouldn't let that fade to the periphery. Mm.
0: Yeah. So ultimately, at the core, of the regulative principle is to let God's Word regulate. Uh, the worship of Precisely. God's people, which is related to the topic of the hymn that we're going to be profiling this week, and that hymn is "How Firm a Foundation." It's a hymn that's often associated with the, the doctrine of God's Word, and that's because the first verse starts off with "How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word." What more can He say than to you He has said, "You who unto Jesus for refuge?" Have fled. The, Alex, this hymn was written uh, in or published for the first time in 1787. I was surprised to find this out. I expect maybe you know this, but this was published in John Rippon's hymn. Mm-hmm. So it's this is a hymn claimed by the Baptists. Yeah, sure. Uh, we Alex, you and I are fans of Anglicans. We love Anglicans. We don't love all of their doctrine. I find we're offering, often profiling hymns po- popularized by Anglicans or Methodists. Mm-hmm. It's good to get a Baptist what in there. Oh, sure. Uh, so this one was published by by John Rippin, uh in his selection of hymns from from the best authors was the title of the title of the hymn. Uh, or title of the hymnal. And this hymnal, as I've said in the past, it was mostly Isaac Watts' hymns uh, with a select few from from other authors. So this one was attributed in, in his hymnal to, it, w- it was just the letter K was all that was written for the author. So there's broad speculation as to who the actual author of How Firm a Foundation now, was. No, when you say
1: broad speculation, like is someone... Were there documentaries done to try to uncover who Kay was? And you know,
0: yes, yeah. yes. There, there was investigative there, journalism. There's, there's been some. There's been some deep work done on this, uh, but here you're gonna love this, Alex. I, I in, in the half baked research I do for these hymn profiles, I was like <laughs> dancing a jig when I figured this out. So, Kay, it's commonly believed was prob- probably a Robert Keene.
1: And do you know what Robert Keane's role at Ripon's Church was? I, okay, so I I I think I know this from somewhere. And I'm not sure where. Was he like the song leader at Rippon's Church? He was the presenter. Uh, the isn't it the presenter?
0: Present. Well, yeah. I don't know how you. It is with a C. Yeah. He's not a presenter. Yeah. Like he's not a presenting presenter. P R E C. Yeah. Centor. Right. Uh. Yeah. So he was the guy who would have you know played the tuning fork or whatever to pitch pipe and then would have started the congregation off singing. This is like my dream job. All right. And must have been a humble brother because you know he wrote, he writes one of the best hymns of all time, How Firm a Foundation, and uh, won't even include the credit. Well, well maybe more humble off. than
1: his pastor because I've seen so many people attribute this hymn to John Rippon. Ah. We we know he did not write it. But uh, and I don't know if he ever took the credit himself. Yeah. I, I highly doubt he did. But he's often falsely attributed as the the author.
0: Yeah. So it was uh, first popularized in uh, John Rippon's church among Baptists, and uh, they co-opted the tune, Adeste Fidelis, which, Alex, you know what that is, what that's Latin Always for? Always Faithful? No, that's O Come, o come All come You Faithful. All You Faithful. Yeah. yeah, so it's the tune for O Come All You Faithful was the original tune, uh-huh. but most people would know this to a tune that was popularized in the 1830s in an American hymnal put out by Joseph Funk. Uh, Joseph Funk, his tune, which is called Foundation, uh, which he wrote for this tune, uh, is the most popular tune. We'll include it in the, uh, in the links in the notes. And uh, yeah, so this, this hymn, it, it's a Baptist hymn, uh, an English Baptist hymn, but has taken on, I would say, an American Baptist hmm. uh, flavor in the centuries since. Uh, another fun fact, this was a favorite hymn of General Robert E. Lee. Uh, Alex, any thoughts about Robert E. Lee and his faith and his background?
1: No, I mean it's unfortunate that he fought for the Confederacy. Uh, I don't know a ton about Robert E. Lee. I, he's one of these guys I need to study, but I uh, have every to believe he was a very pious man, and I think I think uh, uh, was a genuine Christian, walked with the Lord. Um, I think he got some things wrong and had some made some poor alliances, but um, I know he loved this hymn, taught in Sunday school in his church, things like that, and. Um, It was especially treasured by uh, folks in the Confederacy, but I think on both sides.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So this hymn was championed by good people. It was championed by bad people. One of the bad people was Joseph Smith in 1835. He published a hymn book, too, the founder of Mormonism, uh, and he was uh, quite a fan of How Firm a Foundation as well. But uh, we don't need to discuss these men anymore. We need to discuss the content of Mm -hmm. the actual words. The hymn is ultimately a celebration of the faithfulness of God. And uh, as I read in the first verse, the first verse marks just the great foundation saints have in God's word, specifically the promises that are found in God's word. And then verses, uh, many, many uh, hymnals have uh, six or seven verses of this. Usually it's around five. The one I grew up with has six verses. Um, but for most versions, verses two, three, and four are, are uh, leaning heavily on promises God makes in Isaiah, particular, particularly Isaiah 41 and 43. That's, that's promises like, Fear not, I am with you, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. And then the last verse, which is the last verse you would, you would have in, in any hymnal or version of this song, uh, is a reference to promises specifically held and kept in Christ. And uh, I will read the last verse, which says, That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Alex, what do you like about this hymn?
1: Well, I love every line of this song. I love how uh, the quotations from Isaiah are just wonderful. My favorite verse is actually the fifth verse, which is often... Uh, well in, in my Trinity Hymnals, the fifth verse, which is often taken out of uh, the singing and I could understand why, but I just love the thought of the line. so uh, it reads uh, een down to old age een. even what is een even down da- even down to uh, old okay. age, all my people shall prove my sovereign eternal, unchangeable love. So it's into it's talking about people people growing old and proving the Lord's faithfulness. And especially as a pastor, that's just one of the sweetest things in the world to me. You want to see people persevere and make it to the end. And to see sheep you know, cross the Jordan into glory, having maintained a good profession and steadfast faith in Christ through his covenant love is one of the sweetest things in, in ministry. So then, then it says, and when hoary hairs, that's an old word, and that's why a lot of people cut it out. But, but hoary hairs, not W-H-O-R-E, it's H-O-A-R-Y, which means graying hairs, basically, or, 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 or um, yeah, really straight graying hairs. And when hoary hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. You imagine old saints still attending the worship of God, still seeking to meet with him and, and pursue him in the context of gathered worship. And, and it's, it's a wonderful statement of their faithfulness in uh, 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 steadfastly being devoted to Christ and to the church to the means of grace and to the worship of God, following the Lord. Uh, but it's a larger show about God's faithfulness. Even when they're old and they, uh, they are adorning the temple with their graying hair, the Lord still bears them like lambs at his bosom, which is such a tender image, and it's a wonderful way to think about the older saints in your church and younger saints, the lambs in the bosom of the Lord. And um, it's that way, not just that conversion, but on through old age and into glory, which is, I just think is, is just wonderful. One of the other unique things about this hymn is it's primarily
0: spoken in the first person from the Lord's perspective. I don't know if we have any other hymns like that, um, but I think that gives this hymn a, mm-hmm. a, a, very, a very special uh, tone as we're singing this. We are basically hearing god's actual actual promises to us he's pledging his faithfulness to us which is just wonderful amen all right well brothers and sisters with that we are out of time alex thank you for your time thanks brother